The Coates and Children's Library at Princeton University Library presents The Bibliophiles. I'm Dr. Dana. Today my guest is Norton Juster, author of the legendary book, The Phantom Tollbooth. Milo is a boy who doesn't know what to do with himself, isn't interested in much, and doesn't see the point in anything. But when a mysterious package containing a toy tollbooth arrives in his room, everything changes. Past the tollbooth are the lands beyond, which house places like Digitopolis, the Valley of Sound, the Doldrums, Dictionopolis, and the Mountains of Ignorance. Milo is soon joined by a pair of unusual traveling companions, Tuck and Humbug, as he attempts to bring Princess's rhyme and reason back to settle the warring kingdoms of words and numbers. First published in 1961, the Phantom Tollbooth is wacky, smart, odd, fun, strange, and completely captivating. It is often compared to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in terms of its intelligence, wordplay, and impact on children's literature. Now, in over 50 years of publication, The Phantom Tollbooth, with its iconic illustrations by Jules Pfeiffer, has been analyzed in scholarly papers, quoted in dissertations, included in graduate classes, documented on film, read aloud in elementary school classrooms, passed along through generations of families, and newly discovered by young readers. It is, and will always be, a seminal book in the history of children's literature. In addition to The Phantom Tollbooth, Norton Juster has written The Dot and the Line, A Romance in Lower Mathematics, Albrecht the Wise and Other Journeys, as a surfeit of similes, the Hello Goodbye Window, Sourpuss and Sweetie Pie, the Odious Ogre, and Neville. In 2011, the annotated Phantom Tollbooth with introduction and notes by scholar Leonard Marcus was released. Norton Juster, welcome to the Bibliophiles. Thank you very much. Uh, I thought you'd never finish. <laughs> uh, I'm really happy to be here. I haven't been back at Princeton since I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania and came here for a football game that we were favored to win and Princeton beat the hell out of us. Uh, so you can, you can realize how happy I am to be here again. Um, I, I am, don't know how to begin here. I'm very pleased, first of all, that they've managed to put all my notes up on the <laughs> wall back here. And the, there will be a quiz afterwards. Yeah, there is. I will hand out exams. And just remember one thing. Uh, penmanship is, is uh, going to be one of the marking uh, criteria. So take it easy with it. OK, ask away. <laughs> You've remarked that when you were a child, there were no inanimate objects in your house. Everything from tubes of toothpaste to pairs of shoes had their own personality and life. Yes, that's perfectly accurate. Uh, it drove my parents crazy. Uh, I had marbles, those little glass things that I guess nobody uses anymore. And each one of them had a different personality and I'd play with them on the floor and there'd be all kinds of little personal things going on between them that even I didn't know about. And, uh, but everything, everything I had had, had a personality. <laughs> I, I don't like these things. So. But, uh, and it, it, it helped me a great deal because as a child, I seemed to have one great failing as I never understood things the way anybody else seemed to understand things. It was very difficult on my parents who were very uh, helpful and loving and whatever you want to call it, but they never knew what I was talking about. And so that became a, a big part of my, my growing up. Uh, they would say something to me, I would say something back, that had to go back and forth for a while, and finally someone would get exasperated, mostly, mostly my mother, and she would say to me, when I disagreed with something consistently, how can you be right and the rest of the world wrong? And it took me almost a week before I realized that was possible. <laughs> but, but I think animating inanimate things is one of the things that helps you cope with the world better and understand it better. Because it, there is, in a way, that kind of input and output between not just you and other people, but you and the th things in the rest of the world. And if you think about them that way, it's a great help to understanding, or at least 
beginning to think about alternative ways of, of understanding where you are and who you are. And that, that I think, is probably the most I can say about that right now, anyway. Also, when you were a kid, you struggled with math. Can you tell us about that experience? Well, uh, I like math because I, I like any subject that has a lot of humor in it. <laughs> well, don't. I mean, as a kid, you start out and somebody tells you a little bit about something called negative numbers. Now, that's not serious. Uh, they, they can't tell you there are negative numbers. It just doesn't work that way. So I, I, I kind of shut off on math in the beginning. And then, of course, wanting to be an architect when I grew up later, math becomes very important. And uh, I had to really knuckle down to it. And I began to do very well without any real understanding of what I was doing. And a lot of, you know, there are mathematicians who love it and understand it at a level that I understand certain other things, but I never managed to get to that, that level very much. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, math always for me, when I used it not as math, was always very, very funny and, and, uh, and very inspiring for me. You joined the Navy in 1954 and were eventually stationed in Newfoundland. While in the service, you started writing and illustrating stories for children, and you were asked by the commanding officer to stop hanging your watercolors in the ship's corridor. Why were you compelled to write and illustrate a children's story at that time, especially since it wasn't quite in keeping with a military environment? Well, I always used to carry a, a watercolor box with me, because I like drawing and sketching and watercoloring. And there's a lot of time in service when there's really nothing to do. Nobody will tell you that officially, but you waste a lot of time in service. And I had to do something to keep me sane, really. I went into the service uh, not out of any eagerness to be in the service, but it was in the early 50s, 1954, I think it was, when I went in. And uh, there was absolutely um, a required military training at that time. You couldn't get out of it unless you were very wealthy or your father was a senator. Uh, but I simply knew I was going to go in, and I said, well, I have two choices. I can go into the Army for 21 months, or I can possibly enlist in the Navy and do something that might be related to my architectural studies. I had just, just graduated. So I joined, I enlisted in the Navy and into officers' training and became a CB. I don't know whether any of you remember those days when the glorious Seabees were around. We weren't much glorious, but it was okay. And luckily, I was in service after all the fighting had stopped. I think the uh, South Korea thing had just, the truce had come through with North Korea. And so I went in, and without a great deal of enthusiasm, because I had things to do with my life, as many people talk about. But I'll tell you, it was probably one of the most uh, formative times of my life, going into service. You know, I met people I never would have met. I saw places. I be became involved in situations and things that I never would have confronted, and still probably to this day wouldn't have if I hadn't gone in the service. It was something that really, really helped me a great deal. It's that old game you always play with your life. It's a way of opening yourself to other things that you never expect to experience. And that being open to that uh, means that you, you begin to see yourself and the world in a, diff in a different way. And that's what's called growing up. So uh, I, was, I was ultimately was very pleased that I had done that. It was three years, little more than three, actually, out of, out of my life. But it was time well spent, I think. And the children's story? What? The oh, children's well, story? I started to write in the Navy. I started because I, I was doing watercolors. And I was doing things out of the stuff I remembered from when I was a child, children's books and things in the house. And I would... <laughs> <laughs> Anybody laugh gets this in the head. So. <laughs> I, I started to draw, you know, castles, palaces, princesses, knights in armor, all the traditional children's kind of illustrations you found. And the watercolors dry slowly, so I'd tack them up on the walls. We were living on what's called a barrack ship, very unpleasant kind of accommodations. But they were all over the place until a commanding officer called me in one day and announced that um, 
Naval officers do not do drawings of princesses and castles and things like that. And he went on and on. And I, I finally got what he was talking about. And so I had, I had to stop. So I started writing a little bit. Of, those I didn't have to tack up. And uh, I wrote my first book. Uh, it never got published, but it was just me you know, testing my wings. And it was a story called The Passing of Irving. And it was about a mythological creature, or a real creature, who didn't know he was mythological. And it was great fun to do. And when I came back, I showed it to a few people who gave me the usual, it shows a lot of promise, keep working. And, uh, but I, it, it really got me started on, on thinking about, about books. Um, I don't know, everybody says I'm a children's book author. I don't remember ever writing a book only for children. Uh, I, write, I write for myself, and a lot of them, I'm delighted that children enjoy them, uh, but I think a lot of adults enjoy them too. And I think in most cases, if you're writing, it's much better to write what you want to write about without targeting an audience. It'll find its audience. And I go, I go crazy with publishers, what age group is this for? Four to eight, eight to 12, 12 to 14, you know, whatever it is, they always talk about that. And I, I can't think of it that way, because you could do the same thing in terms of human development by saying, okay, this book is for ages 28 to 34, 34 to 40, 40 to 45. It makes the same kind of sense. So uh, I, I bring them in now, finally, after writing several of them, nobody asks me anymore. <laughs> they just said, well, I think I can sell this, or I don't think this will sell very well. And that's their, their, their only uh, way of, of judging these things. Tell us about the beginnings of the Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, yes, well, uh, when I got out of service, I was uh, looking for a job. I had trained as an architect. My father was an architect. My brother was an architect. My playthings when I grew up were all the extra samples and bits and pieces that my father would bring home to the office. And I would, you know, cover the floor in the entire house we lived in with those bits and pieces. Uh, it's what we call um, stuff. That's what I had. <laughs> no, seriously, pan parents do that. They come into your room, they look around and say, it's a mess. What is this stuff? <laughs> and it is. That's exactly what it is. It's stuff and very important in your life. So it's a thing parents will learn a a after a while, I think. Uh, anyway, where was I? The beginnings of the Phantom oh, Tollbooth. the beginnings. You know, that anyway, I started, I, I got a job in an architectural office, and I was very excited, except I was not very sure after those years in the Navy that that's what I really wanted to do. And uh, I was very, you know, in and out with what I thought. And I, one day I noticed in the paper that the Ford Foundation was giving grants to do books on almost any subject you wanted. And when I... Prior to going into the Navy, I had gone to school in England for about a year and a half on a Fulbright scholarship. And uh, while I was there, I got very interested in urban planning. This was right after the Second World War, so the British Isles were rebuilding themselves. And they were doing these new cities and, and uh, new places to live and repairing the damages and everything. And I began thinking about how important that was to this whole new these whole new generations that were coming in and how important the environment of a place is that you live in. So I thought it might be fun to do a book for kids on urban planning and the effects of cities on, on how you live and uh, how they get built and the influence they have on your life and all those kinds of things. And without any uh, second thought, I applied to the Ford Foundation for the grant, never expecting to get it. And I got informed a couple of weeks later that I'd received the award. And there's an old saying, when God wants to punish you, he grants you wishes. Because this is what happened to me. I got started. I worked for several months. I was up to my neck in these four by six little file cards that you make notes on when you go to the library or find information anywhere. And I realized I was lost. I didn't really uh, want to do that at that time of my life. Several things that I, that I uh, had come across and made notes of in my, um, in my uh, 
note, note cards were things that ultimately got into the Phantom Tollbooth. There's a whole section on the two cities called Illusions and Reality that came right you know, from that, and there were a few other things in there. So it, that's, how my, that's how my real writing got started. I visited some friends who had a house on the beach in Fire Island, New York, and I just spent long days on the beach trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. And I began thinking about my own life as a kid, which relates to the business of my parents not understanding me, the teacher not understanding me. They, uh, they were all trying to teach me good things, but they weren't the things that you know I was interested in learning. Uh, I liked learning things. I just didn't like school very much, and I liked my parents very much, but they were so serious about everything. <laughs> And, and my life was really a chaos of crazy kinds of things. I loved wordplay. I loved all sorts of things that way. My father was a wordplay, um, I don't know what you call it. He was a freak in that sense. He was a wonderful, gentle man. And, but I'd come in some days, and he'd look at me and say, Aha, I see you're coming early since lately. You used to be behind before, but now you're first at last. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> so he'd get up from where he was sitting, come over, put his arm around my shoulder and say, you're a good kid and I'd like to see you get ahead. You need one. <laughs> and then every day I'd come in. It wouldn't be the same thing. It'd be something, you know, I like that, a little wordplay thing. And if you remember your own childhood, there's one, there's one response that's appropriate for a pun when you're, when you're young, and that is, ugh. <laughs> But after a while, I began to say, I can do that, and I understand it now. And I slowly grew into it, and I began throwing it back at him. I remember he, he always took us to the beach in the summer, and uh, he never would go in the water very far, probably up to about his knees, and because he didn't know how to swim. And uh, finally, one day, he was in, my brother and I were out in the deeper water, and he was standing about oh, a little more than ankle deep in the water. And I kept yelling at him to come on in, come on in, come on in, you know, be in the water. And he wouldn't come. And finally I said to him, okay, Pop, he also surfs, who only stands and wades. <laughs> and that, that was my start. <laughs> because I love puns now. And, and uh, they just keep popping into my head every, every time I'm reading something or thinking about something, another pun will appear. And, and I think wordplay is, is one of the wonderful ways you get to both understand your own language and ways of thinking about things. It's just a very enriching kind of thing to do. In the Phantom Tollbooth, the kingdom of words is in conflict with the kingdom of numbers. Do you feel this reflects a universal division between words and numbers? Many people almost see words and numbers as a spectrum where if you get closer to words, you move away from being able to comprehend numbers, like the artist who's helpless with numbers, or at the opposite, the scientist who simply can't express themselves with words. Do you feel that you were reflecting that in the book? Yes. No, I'll talk about that a little. It's, it's, it's very, a very old problem and conflict, and it's been around for ages and ages and will be around a very long time, I think. And the way I got interested in that and I thought it would be a wonderful piece of a, of a subject to talk about in the book, because they, they never presented to anything like that to you in, in school. So, so the book has Digitopolis and Dictionopolis, and they have this fight all the way through. And I don't know whether any of you remember this, at the end of the book, where the princesses have been rescued and they're all going off stage in various directions, because you know the book is coming to a conclusion. Uh, the mathematician and King Azaz are, are exiting also, and they start the argument Still again right fighting. at the end. Yep. <laughs> and that was, I just wanted to get that in, and I didn't care if anybody understood it or picked it up. It was just my way of saying, this is not going to end, and be careful. <laughs> so where do you fit on the words number spectrum? Well, I, I don't take sides in this. Uh, no, because I really do think numbers and words, you know, are just part of the richness of our, you know, our culture. That we 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 need them, we need them both. But uh, you 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 come across it not only in in life, but in in schools too, and in, in the majors that people take and things. I think we limit things. One of the reasons I didn't like going to school is uh, 
they never seemed to teach me anything that widened or enriched just factual information. Uh, you learned things, and you learned, you learned how to give back things as it was given to you from the, from the teacher. And that's not a learning process. The learning process for me is, is beginning to think, beginning to put things together. I had one very interesting thing that happened. I was, I was talking at a school one day, I think it was a middle school, and at the end, of course, we asked for questions, and some, a boy got up, he was quite small, but he seemed very bright, and he said, I don't understand what education is, why do we learn these things? And he went on and on, and I was quite uh, upset by it, because that question hadn't come up, even to me. I knew there was something wrong, but I hadn't defined it quite that way for myself. And I started to tell him, I said, look, think about this in your learning. Uh, everything you learn initially is a piece of information that you pick up by yourself or by being at home or ultimately being in school where they tell you in a history class that this, this happened in 1679, this happened in 1834. And, but none of it helps you think or helps you understand why or how or what it affected or anything like that very much. And uh, it, was, it was very difficult you know, for me to be, begin telling myself, you, you have to understand all of this you know, kind of stuff. So I said, look, think of it this way. You learn something, you put it up here. You learn something else, you put it up here. And that goes on and on with all this factual information. And then at a certain point in your life, you uh, begin to notice, hey, this over here connects to this over here, and this over here connects. And, and you, if you look up, you see all of these little dots, or, which are information, being connected with lines. And all of that, that product, if you begin to understand it and how to think about it, is your education. And this little boy looked at me very seriously and said, what happens next? <laughs> and I said something really terrible, because I was trying to ex explain something where I was a little bit out of my own depth there, a lot out of my own depth. I said, and then you die. <laughs> this, this process was what you do your whole life. And I wasn't, I didn't mean to say that's when you die. I meant that is the completeness of I your life. I gotta stop learning right now <laughs> so I can live forever. And it's really true, that's, that's what you do. And that's what too many people don't do. Certainly teachers. Are there any teachers here? Oh, I'm, <laughs> stick around, I'm gonna get you. Was there pressure to write a sequel after the success of The Phantom Tollbooth? Yes, and I never wanted to write a sequel, uh, so I didn't. Uh, and when I wrote my second book, The Dot in the Line, I tried to write something so far away from The Phantom Tollbooth that no one would think one had anything to do with the other. And I just, somehow, the, it didn't feel right. There was a, a, to me at least, a uniqueness to that that I didn't want to stretch it into, a, into another, you know, format or, or Son of Milo or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> Are you ever surprised by the connections readers have with one of your fandom Tollbooth characters or with a particular scene in the book? Well, I get a lot of different questions, you know, about that. Uh, the standard questions I get usually are, where do you get your ideas from? Which means all the different people and the, and the, the situations. Characters. What? Yeah, the characters. Yeah, characters too. And that's, if, if you've written, is the, is the difficult thing. Like, <clears throat> one of the questions is always, how do you invent your characters? Well, you don't invent them. They're there, you, f you think about them, and you have to bring them to life in the sense that they are real people. When they're out of the book, they're also alive and also people. So you have to think them in, the, in, the, in, the, in their whole lifespan. And you have to think of them when they're not in the book, and you have to think of them when they go off and come back on. They're not just hung on a hook in a closet. They're doing things. And the other thing that's really important, and people ask about characters too, is that they, they should be consistent with who they are. In other words, I've run into situations myself where I'm, I have I've thought about characters, and I, and I always, one of the ways I get to know them is I, 
I make up conversations between myself and the character that go on endlessly. They never get in the book, but at least I begin to know something about those, those people, how they think, what they would do, what they wouldn't do. And I found myself on occasions in books where I, I've written myself into a situation where I want to use one of the characters to do something that that character would probably never do. And I, now I have to say to myself, okay, you got to go all the way back and bring it back again the other way because you have to be consistent. The character has to be credible and real. And if, and if there are bad traits or good traits, those they don't exchange you know, so easily. So you have to be very careful with, with what you want to do with them. Was there a particular character in the book that you were continually having to go back and rewrite? Well, it, it happened in, in different ways. I did, I did a book, it was right in the middle of my writing thing, called The, um, the Hello Goodbye Window. I don't know that any of you have ever, ever read it. And it was about my granddaughter. And uh, her mother was, for a long time, was a single mother. And so her grandparents, my wife and I, would pitch in a lot in her, where she was and her upbringing. And uh, she spent a lot of time at our house. And after a while, it became fascinating for me to observe this little girl and what she saw and what she commented on and what she did and how she got into trouble and all kinds of things like that. And uh, I said, that might be an interesting book, but I'd have to write it from her point of view and with her voice. And and I have to be consistent with her, her character also. Well, I started writing, and it went well for a while, and I thought, gee, I really have this, and I put it away, which I tend to do, for a couple of weeks, and then took it out again. I said, gee, this is awfully nice writing, except for one thing. It's not Tori. It's not her voice, and it's not the way she reacts to things. So I took it all the way back and started at the beginning again. And I think I, I finally got it, but it was, wasn't easy to do, you know, because you really, what you're saying to yourself, you're crawling inside the body of this person and becoming them. And for a while, that's what you really have to do. And you have to keep them consistent. You have to keep them real. And uh, many times in books that you read, a character suddenly will emerge for you as being not real or not, not a valid kind of character. Uh, and you have to face that. If you do that, tear it up and start again. Just out of curiosity, do you find it easier to write on a typewriter, a computer in longhand? Oh, I wouldn't know what to do with the typewriter. <laughs> I, I never learned to type. I don't use any machines. I'm from another century. Uh, if you give me two sticks, I'll make a fire for you. Uh, so I write everything and write... Uh, notes, thousands of bits and pieces of paper, which are all over the place. And uh, I told this story before, but it's, it's interesting. At one point, my wife, who's an expert typist and uses a computer and all those things, said to me, how can you read all this stuff? I can't read any of it on that page. Uh, let me type up your notes, and they'll be easier to read. So I said, OK, let's try it. And she typed up some, and I put them away for a week or so took it out, and I couldn't understand any of them. And I realized that my scribbling, which consisted of about four or five different colors to write with, all kinds of diagrams, arrows that ran in places, pictures of things, uh, things that went all over the place in there, that most anybody picking up one of those sheets would not know what, was it, what they were about. But for me, they brought back exactly where I was in my thinking, so it worked better that way. And now, after, after many uh, years of, of uh, asking me to get rid of all that junk, they are now sitting in the Lilly Library in the, in the University of Indiana. <laughs> so, and and it's, it's funny, because they, they find that what they're interested in most was the process of writing. And the thing that surprised me most, uh, I had a friend who deals in manuscripts, so he brought it to them is that the thing that interested them most were the stories I did not finish, the stories that stopped me dead in their tracks. And there are, there are a number of those, and, and my own notes about my problems I was having and this and that. They said, that's the most valuable stuff for, for someone who's interested in writing to read. So 
I'm very pleased that they're all now in one place and people that do use them, they tell me. How do you feel about editors? Am I allowed to use those words? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> okay. There are some wonderful editors. The first editor for the Phantom Tollbooth, it turned out, quite luckily for us, was not a children's book editor. Jules Pfeiffer, the illustrator at that time, was, was going out with a girl who worked in, in, the, in writing and, and, and literature, both children's and otherwise. And she took it, she came to me and said, let me, let me take this to a publisher, to an editor I know. And I said, fine. And um, so I had about 50 pages of it done. I don't write sequentially. I do bits and pieces all over the place and finally figure out a way to put them all together. Uh, so she took it and mistakenly, I think, because I don't think she quite knew what the book was about, she took it to probably the best literary editor in New York, a man named Jason Epstein, who worked for uh, Random House. And uh, he was busy at the time uh, trying to put out a line of his own books for children, which were going to be reprints of classic children's books, from, uh, mostly from other countries, from Great Britain uh, primarily. And it was a time in, in our lives in this country when they were very upset because Russia and China were scoring better, the children, scoring better on tests in schools than our children are. So the big emphasis was, our children have to read better. How do you make them read better? You make it easier, uh, which is kind of crazy. But anyway, that's, and, and, and his books came out, Jason's books, uh, and nobody would buy them because they were all thought to be too difficult. And so when he got my book, he liked it. He brought it out as the first and only original from his new imprint at Random House called the Looking Glass Library. And, uh, and bef before they sent it out, I remember, before they released it to stores and everything, they sent copies to, to writers, to critics, to teachers, to librarians, all to get a kind of reaction to it, what they thought it was going to be or how it would do. And it all came back with the same answer. One, this is not a children's book. The vocabulary is much too difficult. They, they wouldn't do it and they wouldn't uh, be able to. The, Plot was much too complicated and sophisticated for them. The wordplay and jokes and everything, they would never get. And then finally, and it's a fantasy, which is bad for children because it disorients them. <laughs> They're going to go out in boxes to bookstores. The bookstores would go in the basement. Bye-bye, Norton Juster. <laughs> but it didn't quite happen that way. No, it did not. I was lucky, boy. <laughs> and I was lucky I didn't get a children's book editor, I think, at that time. Because their idea was they, they had to get books. They, they sent out these lists of uh, usable vocabulary, very simple words, very simple concepts. And uh, the kids would read those and buy them, but it wouldn't do anything for them. They wouldn't read any better, really, than that. So that they, uh, they were being shortchanged again, as they had been for a long time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to take questions from the audience. Um, I'm going to walk around Oprah style. So you'll have to wait for me to get there with the microphone so we can get your question for Can Norton. I say one thing first? Sure. One question I don't want you to ask is how much money do you make? <laughs> Which always comes up. And I have an answer for it, though. I'll tell you. It's more than I expected and less than I deserved. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you have a question, let me see over here. I'll start over here. This is actually two questions, one from my daughter and one from me. Her question is the first question that occurs to any reader, which is who, who what entity, organization, or person gave the toll booth to Milo? And my question is this comparison with Alice. Um, it's certainly been important, sounds like it was important to your editor, and it's been important to readers in kind of making sense of what they have here. Do you... What do you think of that comparison and the relationship between your, your well, book and Well, I'll start with the Lewis second one and then go back to the first one, okay? I had never read Alice in Wonderland when I wrote the book, when I wrote The Phantom Tollbooth. Uh, so a, a lot, I had read, read it afterwards when I began, when I began, <laughs> I think I'll just swallow this. And <laughs> when I, uh, 
after the book had come out and this, this thing came up as an issue at times. And I loved it. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful book. It's set in a different time in a different way uh, and with largely different attitudes, but the machinery of it is very much the same, I think. And he was, of course, a wonderful writer, so I don't mind being in that company. <laughs> now, the other question from your, uh, from your daughter. Who sent Milo the oh, tollbooth? Well, I have had that kind of a question, but from the other end, and I'll tell you a little bit. I don't, those questions I can't answer because I don't know. They came largely from my own discontent, unhappiness, and unsureness of who I was and where I stood in the world. So they, they were un, unnamed things. I, I can't name you the source. But one question that comes up and relates to that is people ask me, okay, Milo goes through the whole adventure. He comes back, he's home. Who gets the toll booth next? Who was responsible for that? And I thought about it because I would, it would come up when I visited schools a lot. And the last thing you want is to be called is to be caught with a blank face uh, when that question is asked. And it seemed to me that it wasn't so much the toll booth that was important. Uh, the toll booth was to me uh, a device for getting Milo from the real world to this fantasy world, so he could try to unravel unknown to him, what, what the, was happening in the world and why he was not happy with a lot of it. Uh, so it seemed to me that it was a problem that a lot of people have. And it wasn't so much a matter of getting a formal toll booth to, to make that trip, but it was to get yourself into a situation where perhaps without a formal toll booth, you and your life began to move in a direction where you accepted the idea that there were alternative ways to think about things. There were ways to understand them. There were ways to enhance your own feeling about what was going on in your, your world or what would be your world in a few years. And uh, it's, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's a, it's a re religious term. Uh, Epiphany, yes, I'm sorry. Who said that? You get an A. You get a free signed book. <laughs> right. But that, that is the right word for that because the opportunity for that to happen, I think, happens very much in life. Something will happen. Somebody will tell you something. You'll read something. You'll have an experience. And suddenly you realize there's a whole area of your understanding that you don't understand. That you don't know. And, and this is the opportunity to do something about that. And not, not everybody picks up that opportunity. When something happens in your world that forces you to do something or to increase your understanding or improve your attitude about things or accept the idea that there are a lot of different ways to think about things. And, and, and that's, the real, that's the real change. That's in my, this is afterward now. This is not what I set out to do. I didn't know what I was set out to do in the book, but that's the, the most important thing that I think happens in the book, that that's for someone or to help them understand that that is part of their world. That's what they can do. Another question for Norton? Yes. Um, who or what is your favorite character or situation in the, in the book? Or this might be a slightly different question, which was the most fun to write? In the book? Well... Uh, my, the one, the characters and the situations that were most interesting and fun for me to write, almost all of them had to do with the demons. Because this was, these were my demons when I was a kid. These are, I had to cope with all of those things. Uh, filling in the O's in a, in a book, you know, became very important in my life to avoid doing things I was supposed to be doing. And, uh, so I enjoyed those, and I enjoyed, you know, like the, the dirty bird near the end of the book and, and, the, and, and taking things completely out of context all the way. Uh, to me, one of the great villains in our society is context. When someone says, oh, they've said that because they were out of context, that to me is a good thing. And as much as your time as you can spend out of context, you'll begin to understand more about things. <laughs> But I know that's, you could go on forever about that in, in there. But uh, 
in, in terms of fun, I'll tell you a little bit. When I had Milo as a character, I could deal with Milo because he was me at that age, and I had a very good memory from my early childhood. Uh, but then at a certain point, I said to myself, okay, Milo should have a mentor, should have someone in his life who is looking for his benefit, is protective, a whole range of things you can talk about. And when I used to come home from elementary school at about three o'clock in the afternoon, there was a string of programs, 15 minutes long, sort of for children. Uh, Jack Armstrong, the all-American all boy, uh, all, you name them, they were there. And in one of the stories, there was, um, who was a character? I can't remember. If one of the children's stories was a character who did just that. And so for me, that was, a, as a model, that's the character I used for uh, the dog, Tuck, who is... I love Tuck. Yeah, I like him too, but you, you don't have to clean up after him. <laughs> Uh, so, he, so we had our mentor. Then I said to myself, but I can't just have that. There are other influences on your life at all. I have to have the oppo op opposed character, someone who is, never tells the truth, is only looking out for himself, can't be trusted, all of that, and there you have the humbug. Did you incorporate any of your personality into any of the characters? Oh, dear, I, I hope so. <laughs> because um, that in the beginning, that was... My problem and my difficulty with the world, I had, I had a brother, an older brother, he's four and a half years older, and he was everything at that time I wasn't. He was very bright, very successful, very good looking, a terrific athlete, all the things that you would want to be in your lifetime. And I was quiet, withdrawn, Looked like a badly carved Halloween pumpkin. Oh! Uh, anything you, you could think of. And I didn't, we, we liked each other, but we were just very, very different. And uh, everybody would say, oh, Howard is the hope of the family. You know, he's, Howard was going to do something wonderful. And they would stop there. They wouldn't attack me in any way. But they knew, I knew where I stood. Except my parents were very loving. Howard was very helpful. That was just the way of the world. And so I was left alone a lot, not, not abandoned, but they gave me a lot of room. Because if my parents asked me a question about anything, they were sure to get something back that they didn't understand, or they would get angry about, or something like that. So I had the great advantage of being left alone and living a, lot, a large part of my early life right in here. And so I would, would fantasize about a lot of things. I'd think about you know, a lot of things I wouldn't communicate them, you know, very much to them. Even, even in school, the teachers would be very kind of puzzled by how I responded to things. Uh, I would come in very excited one day about reading something, and they say, oh, we're not up to that yet, as if I'd committed a great crime, you know, by reading a little bit ahead. And there were all kinds of, of things like that. And, and all, they were pieces of who I was. So I guess the answer to your question is yes, I think I'm in there. But not in a way, hopefully, that people can look at me and say, oh, you were in there. You know, you try to keep it as part of the fabric of the story, yeah. So I have two questions. One, how old were you when you started writing it? And two, what did you think of, um, when the movie came out? Okay, how old was, was when I started to write it? Probably about six. No, not, not, not serious about that. But in a way, it's true, because I was living the part that later I would use. So that's part of it preparing yourself for it. I wrote it in the late 1950s. It took me about a year. And uh, it was hard work, but interesting and good work. And I'll talk a little bit about the problems you have of writing. Now, what was the second part of that? What did you think of the movie? Uh, the movie was a strange thing because they made a movie first of my book called The Dot and the Line. This was uh, um, MGM. And it went very well. And a wonderful man named Chuck Jones, who was the, uh, uh, a great pioneer in, uh, what do you call it? Animation. Animation. <laughs> Thank you, God. Um, and, the book, and the movie was terrific. And it won an Academy Award in 1968 for an for animated short which the producer and director got. 
I got nothing. <laughs> but it was okay. I loved the movie and the dot in the line, but usually with a feature-length movie like this was, it is the author who always wants the book presented exactly as it is. And the producer or director who always say, no, no, we have a big opportunity here to open it up because we have the wonderful world, visual world to work with here and we can do a lot more things. And this movie was exactly the opposite. The director, and again was Chuck Jones. For the, the saying, Phantom Tollbooth movie? Yeah. Yep. Okay. We want to do it exactly like the book. And I said, no, no, Chuck, you've got to take advantage of the things we can do here visually that you couldn't do in the book. And it came out, and I didn't like it much. I didn't see it for years and years and years. And then finally, one day, we live in Amherst, and the Un University of Massachusetts is there. And I read a thing in the paper that they were showing it that night in, at the University of Massachusetts um, with a third-rate um, horror film. I, I forget <laughs> the name perfect. of it. But, so I went, and I sat through this terrible horror film. And then my movie came on. And I just didn't like it at all. And now that there's a possibility now that they may be doing another one. So uh, I never believe those things till they actually happen. But uh, that would be very nice. I'd, and the way I would do it is I would not do it an, any part of it animated. I would do the whole thing with the real uh, cast, real people. Because there are so many wonderful opportunities with the characters in the book to do them with, with real people. Another question? <laughs> I'm curious about the title. Was it inspiration, desperation, <laughs> hard work? How did you choose it? Yes, the answer to yes is all of um, <laughs> When did you know uh, it was going to be the title? Well, I didn't know it right away. Because, A, I didn't know it was going to be a book right away. It was just me musing about things. Uh, but then I thought, okay, the, what you need is someone to get this character from one world into the other. Well, Alice, of course, goes down the rabbit hole. And in, in uh, what's his name's books? Uh, Sun the children the, go through the wardrobe. In, yeah, the cupboard. Yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis. God, I'm losing my memory. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the book. But anyway, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. Okay. The thank you. You <laughs> should do this talking. I should do this for a living. <laughs> and uh, I said to myself, okay, what are ways? I mean, I could go and look in the mirror and go through the mirror, but people on that, and I didn't think it was really appropriate. Anyway, so I said, okay, what's, what's a uh, situation that almost everybody knows, especially kids? And that's going on a trip and going through a toll booth. And what, it, what is completely incongruous with the idea of a toll booth, a phantom toll booth, <laughs> makes no sense at all. It seemed to me to be the perfect title. Excellent. How about another question? I've read this book probably more than two dozen times, all-time favorite book. And on page 199, when the math magician has that letter that he's written to Azaz, my, my students for years have tried to figure it out. We've tried every conceivable method of, it, does it mean anything? Uh, I have the same problem, so. <laughs> no, really, I, I was just looking. I, I shouldn't have done. That's a, that's a, a boo-boo on my part. But I was just looking for something that nobody could, in the book, reading the book, could fathom. And so I said to myself, why should I mess around with having a real, the idea of it is that it, it couldn't be read. <laughs> and the beginning, the beer, it looked like it should be beer, A-Z-A-Z, -A -Z, and then you try and look at it. He's a tricky one, Norton yeah, Jester. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tricky one. All right, I'm going to take one more question. Why does the humbug and the... Uh, spelling bee ha this uh, kind of have like problems like King Azaz and the Math Magician. The humbug and who, el who the else? The humbug and the spelling bee. The conflicts between the two. Because they're both that kind of person. <laughs> yes. The humbug <laughs> is a pain in the you know what. And the spelling bee, his only concern in life is spelling. And they're very sensitive about their positions in the world. So they would get into a fight on almost anything because they just, that's the way they are. I can't explain it any other way. But I love that, the idea of that tension in, in the book, you know, because things happen because of that. 
I think we actually can do one more. All right, so what do you do if you have writer's block? Or have you ever had writer's block? Oh, yes, only always. Uh, no, writer's block, you know, is, is a real problem. Let me tell you something about writing, though. Um, there are three things, three important things about writing. One is the anticipation of writing. What's, that's really the nicest, because you sit there, you're thinking about writing a book, you know it's going to be successful, you know it's going to make a lot of money, you know you're going to get the Nobel <laughs> Prize. Course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every, all the way, because you haven't done it yet, so anything is possible, right? And the third thing is when you've just finished, and that's terrific, you know, you're out of it, the work is done. The really difficult part of writing is writing. And you know, you know it, it's, it's an anxiety-making, uh, terrible uh, situation where you're always afraid. You wake up in the morning, nothing's going to come today. You go to bed at night knowing that you wrote what you wrote all day is a bunch of garbage. Uh, just every, everything sucks energy out of you and frightens you and, and, and makes your life very difficult. And then you finish. And, uh, and you don't know, you know what's going to happen. And the thing that always amazes me is about six months later, six to eight months later, it usually is, you think back, and that's one of the happiest times of your life. Why that happens, I don't know. But it, possibly it's that you've faced a problem, you've gone all the way through, and didn't let yourself get scared out of it. You don't know whether it's going to be a success or not, but that's not important. What you've done is the real success. Even if it's a failure, and that's the thing everybody tells you in life, and it's true, is that you can learn more from failures if you stick with them, and if you do the best you can. And then you can go back and look at it and say, oh, I know what I can do next time. So either way, it, it works. So uh, I don't have any magic, you know, magic formulas for, for writing. But I don't know whether that answers your question, but it's, it's what always amazes me you know, about the writing. And it used, to, it used to be perfectly valid when I was doing architecture, you know, too. You, you get an idea, you try to make it the best you can, make it work doing a lot of different, different things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the experience of it is, is what's important. Norton Jester, thank you so much for coming on the Bibliophiles today. Would anybody like to buy a microphone? <laughs> <laughs>